Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Catherine Shin. We talk to a lot of interesting people on the show. Today, we're revisiting three memorable conversations we've had this year. Later, we'll hear from a member of the Skatico Tribal Nation about how local tribes work with the state on the development of new social studies curriculum. And green burials used to be very common. We'll talk to a Vermont public radio reporter about how they're having a resurgence in New England. But first, Eric Jacobson has just completed his final season as a conductor at the Greater Bridgeport Symphony. We spoke with Eric about his work as a conductor and also heard about the search for the next orchestra leader. I asked him about his first introduction to classical music. Well, I have that unique luck and um, I was gifted the fact that my parents are both professional musicians or were professional musicians. My dad played in the Metropolitan Opera for 30 so on years. My mother was a flutist. And like so many people whose um, um, careers follow the footsteps of their parents, which of course is such a beautiful act of, you know, continued continuation and hopefully at least how I feel it, I assume uh, most people who have children feel the same thing, which is like, you could only hope that your child is happy and joyful and, you know, experiences life in a way that brings them joy. And most likely one of the things that as parents we think about is you hope that your child is better than you because we all realize no matter what we do, it doesn't matter if we're, you know, accountants or cooks or musicians or whatever. Um, I think that being good and excelling at what you do is one of those things that humans need, right? It's the constant decision to improve oneself. So, um, and musicians have it both incredibly hard and incredibly lucky in that we never have reached our goals and it's terribly hard to realize that, you know, you could play your concert and often after a concert, I go home and I study some more and it's the next thing. What are you doing next? Because you're constantly honing your skill, you're sharpening your blade and trying to figure out what's next. And so, yes, that's incredibly challenging because at five o'clock or six o'clock or nine o'clock, you get home and work isn't done and you have to make a decision. You have to say, okay, I'm not going to work anymore right now because it's actually better for me not to or I'm going to keep on working. Um, and of course, that's a challenge yet at the same time for what we do as humans, the decision to keep on trying and to keep on striving. It's one of the greatest uh, um, gifts as a musician, which is, hey, we recognize we will never make it. However, we're going to try our best to get to that place as often as we can. 
Well, I was going to say that's a rather hopeful message for this Tuesday. And about that work-life balance, I think that would resonate with a lot of people. So it's nice to hear from a conductor slash musician that you have the same problem. Um, Oh, yeah. And we talked to Chelsea earlier a little bit about this, but how did you make the change from being a musician yourself to becoming a conductor? What was that process for you? You know, um, when I was in high school, when I, I went to pre-college at Juilliard, which is a Saturday program where you get together with a lot of musicians that are of the same age, you know, between whatever, 10 and 17, and everyone is kind of a music nerd in all the beautiful ways. You know, you, you devote your entire Saturday, the day that you could either be, you know, watching cartoons, hanging out with friends, going to all the bar mitzvahs, you know, all the things that that you do growing up and wanting to experience. And instead, you devote yourself from whatever time you have to get up to that 830 rehearsal till six o'clock at night. And um, that moment, that that time for me was very special. I didn't really um, click with that many people in my high school. Um, of course, I have dear friends from high school that I still am in touch with. However, it was this group of musicians that on Saturday we connected that I sort of felt that I was, um, you know, in in that family. And so what I'd do is I'd go and I'd play and I realized, and I think we all have this to some degree in our lives, um, you know, change is hard. But when I was in high school, and then in college, I thought to myself, if I could have a life in music, I'll be happy. So that's, you know, call, call it high school senior. Um, I auditioned for Juilliard. Uh, I got in, but I felt like I was on the lowest ring, just holding on, barely holding on. My brother, four years older than me, a concert violinist, played, you know, a violin concerto with the New York Philharmonic when he was 13 years old. I had very high expectations and recognition that like to make it as a musician you had to be really good so i feel like i was just barely holding on and honestly at that time i thought to myself you know what if i'm not going to be a performer that's fine i could have a life in music off stage i could run an orchestra i could run a, a performing arts center um, i could run a radio station you know something of like figuring out how to build and create but not necessarily from the stage Though at the same time, I really put my horse blinders on, practiced cello all the ways I knew I should or thought I should. Luckily, I had great teachers, uh, great colleagues, and you know, uh, went through went through college. And I and I realized that my shift happened. So from I need a life in music to I need a life in chamber music. So chamber music for for everyone, um, just to unify what that means. It means a group of humans coming together and playing without a conductor, generally speaking, and probably in the number of four, give or take. You know, you have a trio, a piano, violin, cello, or in my case, a string quartet. So two violins, viola, and cello. Uh, And there's something very special about, you know, now that we're coming up on the 250th anniversary of this country that we're in, and we think back to that year, 1776, and we think to the time that the string quartet more or less was invented. It's not totally true, but um, Joseph Haydn, um, sort of the person who invented the string quartet in a lot of ways, wrote uh, over a hundred of them. Uh, these, the, there was something special about four people 
coming into a room together, all on equal terms, having a conversation. And I, that was happening in Europe in the quartet. And here we were sort of figuring out what America could be and, and hopefully would be someday. Uh, so, you know, I joined a string quartet and was in a quartet for um, 10 years and all the time loving it so much. And sometime in there, I went through this phase of realizing that the repertoire of the orchestra, A, the, the music that we were able to do in orchestra, and B, the fact that I wanted to have this type of relationship with musicians on a broader scale. Like, a, you know, a conductor, in a lot of ways, you could draw a lot of metaphors to either like the CEO of a company, or I think in my case, I really like to think of it as a host of a party. I love throwing parties. I like lots of people around. And I feel like what, what Chelsea mentioned earlier is, you know, finding a way to communicate with people and to get everyone thinking more or less on the same page about a musical act and a musical uh, decision is really beautiful. And I think that's kind of what I was aiming for. So somehow I realized that that was more of the calling that I needed in my life. And, and that was kind of how it happened, saving many details of hysterically crying and telling my dad that I would, you know, mostly be playing, you know, mostly be conducting and not playing anymore because my father doesn't love conductors the way, uh, you know, you'd hope your father would like um, the act of what you are going to do. <laughs> well, I'm wondering if the historical, uh, historically crying portion will really resonate with a lot of us because who hasn't cried in a corner, right? And, and you know, we, I think I want to thank you for, for taking on your calling because having this classical music party with Eric Jacobson uh, on where we live seems to be the good way to start the week, in my opinion. Um, and it, <laughs> you know, it seems like you've had so many, you know, very hardcore experiences, right? But you sound very optimistic as well in terms of where you wanted to go with music. And so, how would you describe your musical style? And do you think you took a little bit of that philosophy working as a conductor during the pandemic? Well, I, I think during the pandemic, we all tried to figure out what we can do. I would go back and do it differently, uh, as I think we probably all would, you know, deciding, well, this is, what is this time really supposed to be for us as humans? And of course, recognizing how challenging it was for so many people and how, uh, you know, those that, that were struggling in different ways than others and how to, but I, you know, I think during the pandemic, we all tried to be our best selves musically. So I spent a lot of time practicing the cello and playing in, in ways that I had not because, you know, when, when you conduct 50, 60 concerts a year and repertoire is always different, you have to study so much to feel confident. And during that time, I was able to sort of go back to the basics a little bit of, hey, this is, I'm a musician. I'm, I, I'm an instrumentalist and I could relate to what that world is. That was a special thing. Um, I would say, uh, and, uh, you know, there probably are some people listening that re remember that really orchestras kind of stopped uh, for quite some time. And I will say thanks to Mark on the call and thanks to the board of the Greater Bridgeport Symphony. Um, the Greater Bridgeport Symphony did more than almost any orchestra in the Northeast at that time in terms of giving music to audience and giving um, hope and somehow the recognition that music is going 
to uh, be on the other end waiting for us. And that was, that was a, a very important thing. I mean, you know, the Greater Bridgeport Symphony plays more or less, you know, around six, six sets of concerts a year and all of the, the educational things that happen around those concerts and so on. And we really committed to making sure that we were still going to be doing that for ourselves, for the artists on stage, for the artists and, and music lovers in the audience, and for the, the, the greater community that we were sending this music out to. So in some ways, that was, that was a real treat and something that the orchestra committed to early on, saying, hey, we're going to be safe let's not overblow this. Let's be safe and do our thing. And I think that was an important um, time for a lot of humans. And with the pandemic too, uh, how has the way we consume music change engagement in live music, do you think? You know, how do you get people to the orchestra and interested in classical music again? Well, I don't necessarily think people lost interest in in music or classical music uh, we, we you know music consumption is up overall uh, there is a tendency for you know for the pop artists that have always had uh, huge sales to continue doing that I think you know we just got to keep on doing the thing that we do best which is connecting on a very deep level and recognizing that that's super challenging because in this culture of um, news cycles that are so short and so quick and, you know, everything is reactioning, reactionary and immediate. And, uh, you know, um, we, we see something and if the video lasts more than 30 seconds, we're kind of lost. And that's a super hard translation. If that is what we are trained to consume, then, then going and hearing a piece of music that lasts 30 minutes is a really challenging moment. That being said, and I hope this resonates with um, some of your listeners, but um, I'm I'm 100% in that. It's not like I am somehow riding above that in a different way. I, I consume the same way I think many people do. Yet one of the reasons we go to concerts, and maybe most, maybe more so, concerts of acoustic music, whether it's classical or folk or something like this, we are there actually because it gives us a moment to step away. And, uh, you know, the device, the connection to what we do, yes, we're going to have that. I don't see a time in my life where, um, where social media is gone. I do see a time, I don't know if you feel this, that, that social media will be maybe spoken of in a different term, sort of like, oh, we know this is unhealthy for people, but we keep on doing it. And we have things in the past, you know, um, whether it's, you know, smoking or something. And we knew it was bad if we kept on doing it. And I feel like there's going to be a recognition. And then we're also going to need to find that moment of, hey, we're going we're gonna to actually have more time in our lives. And I don't know how that ends up happening, but there's something so incredibly beautiful about going back to that, that humanity of sitting in a room together and sharing an experience. And though the world takes that away from us more and more, we, we reach and strive for that. You are in your final season. I, I'm hearing there's going to be some happy tears. Can you share with us, you know, what are some of your next steps? What's, up, what's uh, coming up next for you? 
Well, you know, and I, I just want to make sure that we're all aware of this, but this is my last season as music director. I, of course, um, want to be involved in this orchestra and this community going forward because it has been an absolute dream. And I feel like, uh, once again, almost embarrassed how much I received, you know, for my soul and for my experience through the musicians and the community from the group. And this group, this orchestra will thrive on, uh, there's no question. That was Eric Jacobson, former conductor for the Bridgeport Symphony Orchestra. We've got to take a short break. Coming up, though, we're learning about Native American curriculum that's available. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. Loneliness can be a significant health risk to people of all ages. Dr. Laura Saunders, a psychologist from Hartford HealthCare's Institute of Living, talks about social isolation and why we need to connect in person. Loneliness actually is a pretty significant health risk for people that struggle with social isolation. It affects their blood pressure, it affects their immune system, it affects your willingness to get up and get out and can cause some not just emotional issues, but health problems as well. You're not alone. Dr. Saunders explains how important it is for us to look to others and get out of our comfort zone. I like to talk about social isolation as not just that individual's problem, but it's a community problem or it's a family problem. We need to connect with others. We can take space at times as well, but we need to step out of our comfort zone and do things to connect with other people. It's life-saving. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. In classrooms starting next year. This is where we live. Stay with us. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Catherine Shen. When you learned about Native American history in school, chances are it didn't touch on this region and its unique tribes. That's about to change. Over the past year, the State Department of Education and Connecticut's five sovereign tribal nations are working together to develop Native American curriculum for K-12 social studies classes, which will be rolled out next year. Darlene Kasich is an education coordinator with the Institute of American Indian Studies and a traditional Native American storyteller with the Scaticoke Tribal Nation. When she was on the program earlier in the year, I asked her about her role at the Institute of American studies and how she helps people better understand this local history. For the past 45 years, our museum has run education programs for local schools. Um, It's been an asset to teachers because they often don't know how to teach this history. And while the teachers are there, they're also learning. Um, For example, many teachers don't realize that Indigenous people have been here in this area for over 12,000 years. So what we teach is that history um, of this area, you know, beginning with the Native American people, it makes sense to start there. And we talk about the changes over time that indigenous people made based on changes in climate, new technologies, and then the um, introduction of new cultures. And when I feel that when you teach children about Native American people and their beliefs, you know, what their worldviews were, what their priorities were, they could better understand the conflicts that come up later on when you're talking about historical events. Because, you know, the, the two cultures were so different. 
on how they viewed land and resources and so on. I mean, you just blew my mind with 12,000 years. <laughs> That's a lot of years. And, um, and as we all know, this is complicated, right? And I believe oftentimes Native American history is taught as, a mono, as uh, monolithic and often conflating with um, what are now more than nearly 600 federally recognized tribes. And I also think it's taught sort of frozen in time, a thing of the past, how do you bridge these knowledge gaps for students and especially now, more importantly, for teachers? Well, that's it. most important for us is to not only talk about the past, the past 12,000 years, but bringing it all the way up to present day. Um, when I do an education program and I introduce myself as a scattercoat, you know, uh, someone from one of the five tribes here in Connecticut, children are often very surprised because they expect to see something different. Everything they've been exposed to has been in the past, Native American people in deerskin clothing and so on. For them to see someone, you know, in sneakers and jeans and, you know, a flannel shirt is kind of surprising to them. So one of the ways that I explain it to them is that Native American people often dress differently for celebrations and such, much like they do. If a child was in a wedding ceremony, they might wear, you know, um, a flower girl dress, you know, dropping rose petals down the aisle, right? Um, a boy might be wearing a tuxedo as the ring bearer. They're dressed differently because they're part of a cultural ceremony, a wedding ceremony. Well, we dress differently when we're part of ceremony as well. And I explain the regalia that we wear, but in our everyday lives, we don't wear our regalia to stop and shop, right? Um, those are only for special occasions. And when you connect it to their own lives and their own, you know, um, traditions and such, they can understand it better. Um, you know, we're often asked, you know, do you live in a wigwam? No, I live in a regular house with cable TV, electricity, internet, all the same things that, you know, the children have in their own homes. So it, it humanizes us. It takes us from the past into the present day. We, you know, think that this is a very important part of history as well, is talking about the present day. And we, you know, often talk about different famous people that they didn't realize were indigenous. Um, that often comes to them as a surprise as well. I don't know. Um, going to Stop and Shop is a special occasion for me for leaving the house. So I think the idea of wearing regalia to Stop and Shop is is a pretty sweet idea to me. <laughs> um, but I think what you just shared, it, it cross cultures, too. I, I think there's a lot of culture around the globe that, that shares that same concept of wearing regalia, cultural regalia during their you know special occasions. And so the fact, you know, you grew up in Connecticut or you grew up in Connecticut schools. How does that experience inform your work? It's the driving factor of what I do. My experience is I'm 63. My experience is growing up and learning about Native American people only in November. You know, <laughs> like we learn about how America was discovered and that, oh, by the way, in November, there were some people here. Like it didn't make sense to me. And what they were teaching me was inaccurate. Um, and most of what they were teaching me were about tribes in the plains. And I was confused. It was like, we have tribes right here. Why aren't we talking about them? You know, this is our history. Why are we learning about, you know, the plains? 
So it's really important to me that we talk about things truthfully and honestly. The way that I was taught uh, taught about Thanksgiving was the really what is what really um, changed my my views on school, because much of what they were teaching me was inaccurate. The photographs that they were showing me, or the the paintings and prints, didn't depict the native people here. So I would raise my hand and I would say, "I'm sorry, but they didn't wear that kind of headdress," and I would get in trouble for it and sent to the principal. So. It made me distrust what my teachers were telling me, because if they were teaching me history that I knew was wrong, how do I know what what other things they're teaching me, you know, whether those things are accurate or not? So it really tainted my view of education. And I don't I don't really want children today, you know, native children today to go through that same experience. I, I think it's important that their their histories are honored and talked about and discussed. I think that's a, an amazing sort of experience. Even as a young student, I just can't imagine thinking through that at that age. And so, you know, we talked about、uh, history, sort of frozen in time, and you just mentioned that you were being taught inaccurate information. What are some other common misconceptions that you're finding yourself having to clear up? Oh, so there are so many.、Um, we start with asking the children. You know what do you know about Native American people, and what they know in the beginning of our program, you know, is very little and it's very stereotypical. At the end of the program, we ask, "What have you learned?" And we realize that we've opened up their minds and gotten rid of many of those myths and stereotypes, you know,、um, that they had in their minds. And you can't blame them; it's the resources and information that they've been given. It's the images that they see. I have a story about my son when he was eight years old. We went to a museum here in Connecticut, and he saw a stone axe in a case, and it said, "This is primitive technology." Was over the top of it. This is an axe used by Native people to chop down a tree. So my son looks at that. He sees the primitive technology, and he says, "Mom, my ancestors weren't very bright." You would have to hit a tree forever to chop it down with that dull stone axe, and I realized that he was still being taught, you know, from one point of view. So I took him home and I showed him how Native people chopped a tree down. We set a fire down at the roots. We painted an area with clay so that it wouldn't burn, about two feet high up from the ground, and he learned that it's the fire that was cutting down the tree, not really that stone axe. That stone axe was just helping that tree fall down, and it totally changed his view of his ancestors and their intelligence. He was like, "Wow, that's brilliant!" And then when I explained to him how that's how they made dugout canoes as well by using fire, it changed his whole perspective. So I think we need to get rid of some of that imagery and wording that's out there now. Native people weren't primitive, you know, in the way they did things; they just did things differently. Well, just by you sharing that story with us, I I have a different view now with how those are those tools are are used. And so, you know, with your constant experience with this and sharing stories and and helping people understand the culture, are there specific cultures of indigenous people that you like to share? I like to talk about 
how they viewed the land and the resources and how different that was from the way the colonists viewed land. For example, in our language, there was no word for owning land because that was a concept that didn't exist. You were just borrowing land from future generations. So the way they interacted with the land was differently. They respectfully harvest, to this day, respectfully harvest you know, plants, animals and such. They only take what they need and they utilize every bit of what they take. So nothing is wasted. And that's a message that, you know, everyone can learn from, you know, how to interact with this world a little bit differently, only taking what you need. Um, we try to have the children connect things that they have with where they come from, because they're missing that important step. Um, they don't realize where certain things come from. For example, leather, right? We talk about the tanning process, how Native American people, you know, took a deer hide, scraped off the fur, becomes a raw hide, added an acid and an oil to soften it up to become a leather that you could wear. But they don't realize that that process is still being used today for the leather shoes they're wearing, the leather belts they're wearing. So it opens up their mind to that technology and how it wasn't so primitive. I actually remember as a reporter in California that I witnessed um, a Chumash uh, Indian do that in front of me, not from start to finish, but sort of parts of it. And it did help me appreciate how, you know, our goods, where where does it come from? And so, you know, as a part of this conversation and, and you being involved in the statewide effort to include and to distinguish the five sovereign Connecticut tribes and social studies classes, can you touch on why that is so important and also to speak to Skadokoke traditions specifically. I think it's really important that students understand who the people were in the area where they live. We have this wonderful map that shows all the tribes that were here, the territories that were here in 1620 at time of contact. And they love looking up like where their town is who were the people that you know lived where they live now? Um, I think that's an important um, something important for them to know that you know there were people here before you know settlement happened, and that um, you know those territories are no longer there now, but there are re remnants of those tribes in the five tribes that we have today. And we know this work is still in the early stages, but what can you tell us about your involvement and hopes for resources? I am so excited to hear that there's going to be changes made to the curriculum. Um, I'm hoping that, you know, it's something that touches on all the grades and it could be taught in different subjects besides just history. Um, it can go into the sciences. It can go into the arts. It can go into music and such. Um, there's so many ways that we could bring in indigenous histories and culture um, into the classroom that, you know, I'm really excited to see how this is going to turn out. I think it's important that all five tribes have representatives to make sure that their stories are being told accurately. And that's not an easy feat. And that's why I understand that they're not going to roll this out until 2024, because it takes time to get all these tribes together. Um, and I think it's long overdue. 
where tribes, you know, the five tribes here work together for a common cause. That was Darlene Kasich. She's an education coordinator with the Institute of American Indian Studies and a traditional Native American storyteller with the Scaticoke Tribal Nation. Coming up next, we learn about the resurgence of green burials in New England. Stay with us. This is where we live. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Catherine Shen. For Earth Day 2023, the New England News Collaborative highlighted innovative solutions to mitigating climate change, including a renewed interest in green burials. We heard from Lexi Krupp. She's a science and health reporter for Vermont Public, and I asked her to start with a history of green burials. Thinking about green burials, which is just this idea of letting your body decompose underground is like the oldest tradition ever. Um, And it's still really the custom in in Jewish and Muslim burials. Um, It's pretty new in the last maybe couple hundred years that really America has uh, been pioneered this like embalming caskets, concrete vaults. A lot of what we associate with like a conventional cemetery now is a, is a new is the new thing um so letting your your body decompose underground and like in a shroud or a you know plain um wooden casket or, or you know pine box that's that's uh the way people have been buried for forever so we're obviously going to be talking a lot about climate change and, and stories related to it but was there a reason why this particular angle uh, drew your attention yeah, you know, I um, had a neighbor who told me about a um, a natural burial she had been to and how really powerful it was. Um, and I actually heard that in a lot of um, cemeterians I talked to, people in the death care industry, they're like, yeah, this is, you know, like a good thing for the environment, sure. But like, really, there's... Um, it's like helpful for people like in, in, in terms of, you know, this terribly vulnerable time of losing a loved one um, and having this like closure and connection can be, can be really powerful um, and a little more intimate. Um, So that was a a piece of this that, um, yeah, I, I, I got pretty interested in. And so can you sort of walk us through, I think green burials were only recently legalized in certain places, and in many places you have to be buried in a vault and be buried at a certain depth. Can you sort of walk us through that? Yeah, yeah. This is such an interesting history. So um, I'm like, you're totally right. In a lot of individual cemetery bylaws, there's still these rules on the books that you have to be buried in a concrete vault, which is like a big box of concrete in the ground underground um uh, like a lot of pollution actually if, if you if you think about it but that, that um came about year you know over 100 years ago for a couple reasons um one was grave robbing was a 
an issue in the late 1800s, early 1900s for um, for medical students looking for cadavers. It was like a, a way to make money to um, to sell these these bodies for um, these medical schools. So that was that was like an issue in in Vermont and and all over um, New England, Mid Atlantic. There's stories of of grave robbers. So that was one way to like protect. Um, these these bodies was to require these concrete vaults um and then there were um there was the development of germ theory like oh like dead bodies like lots of bacteria and like things that are bad for us so so that was another reason to have um to have these vaults and have these depths like um on the books until 2017 in Vermont, you had to bury people six feet, five and a half or six feet deep. Um, and that's like not a great place in the soil to encourage decomposition. It's a little below this active layer of soil where there's a lot of oxygen, there's more heat, there's more like microbes doing their thing. Um yeah, and then and then finally, there's there's a more modern reason why um, some of these rules are still in the books to have these vaults, to have these depths. Really, the vaults um, because of lawnmowers. Um, if you are in a vault, um, you're gonna the, you know the ground isn't gonna settle after you know the the body or the casket is decomposed a little bit, so it's going to stay even and level and easier for a lawnmower to go over there and to mow it. So that was like a couple of the things that um, there were, you know, several people in Vermont working to change these rules a couple years ago, and those were some of the things they kept hearing, like, ah, what about the lawnmowers? So um, they're like, you know, I talked to a woman, she was like, like what we're prioritizing lawnmowers over like how people, you know, want to want to be buried like that's messed up. So. Um, so, yes, that these these laws in Vermont uh, changed in, in 2017. Well, I wasn't thinking that I was ever going to think about lawn mowing and burials. And now you just paint me a very Victorian gruesome picture for me to continue with my day. So thank you very much for that. Um, and one because you talked about, you know, cement boxes and we have there's so many, um, you know, it's not great for the environment. But can you also get into embalming? Because that's also something that's really difficult to break down in soil. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, embalming is basically preserving or, or it's, um, you know, it doesn't perfect. It doesn't preserve the body. It's just slowing decomposition. Um, and it's a really powerful thing. And, um, you know, especially if there's been trauma to a body or, um, you know, it's 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 something that is like still like if you want to if your loved one wants to be embalmed, like, great. There's no like wrong way to, um, I don't know, be to be buried but um there's yeah lots of lots of chemicals in the um in those solutions used formaldehyde um which is not great to have underground um to to you know be going into the soil um and there's like you know some stats about folks who work in that industry having higher cancer rates and you know um being more sick than the general population. Um, so it's it's not great to be exposed to some of these chemicals, you know, over your lifetime. Um, but that is how like a lot of people do it. So that there's, you know, I think it's helpful to just know that there's like, there's an alternative. Um, you don't, you don't have to, you know, do things this way. 
Yeah. So we kind of talked about, you know, the traditional way of burials. And so can you kind of explain to, you know, what what does green burials um, look like, actually? And where do they take place? Like, do they have to be in a certain type of cemetery, a certain type of location? And can you walk us through that? Yeah, yeah. So first, I'll tell you about green burials or natural burials, which is um, instead of being five and a half or six feet, it's a little shallower, like three, three and a half feet. Um three and a half, four feet. So that's again, to like encourage this decomposition. Um, You've got to be in the right type of soil. So like if you're, if there's a lot of clay, it's not going to work well um, because, you know, bodies, whatever things don't break down well in in clay soil. Um, It's year round. So like basically as soon, very soon after someone dies, they're going to be buried in the soil. Um, and again, that's the tradition in Jewish and Muslim burials, but not always the tradition um, like in Christian burials. And another reason why embalming is is um, a technique that's used a lot is to, um, you know, have that open casket and, and to let everyone come and fly in, you know, and and, and um, see this person. So, um, so yeah, they're going to want to be buried um any you know up in vermont it gets pretty cold here the ground freezes but but you know year-round have those have those um burials taking place um and yeah you're really you can have flowers on top of there um you know whatever uh they're usually not mowed very often um yeah those are those are sort of the elements and then what my story was really looking at is how this is becoming more available at conventional cemeteries. So there's, um, I'm going to give you a stat. In 2015, so not that long ago, there were maybe five cemeteries in all of New England that offered green burials. So this, the, all those things I just talked about, that shallower depth, um, all you know, and one one piece I missed. But and and now. Um, in you know 2023, there's well over 70, so it's um, something that's becoming a lot, a lot more common, um, a lot more accessible to people that you don't have to drive hours and hours to go to like a special place. Like it's in, you know, these 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 things are are, are available like maybe in your town cemetery, and if not, you can like join your you know cemetery commission on, in your town and say, hey, I I want to make this an option and um, and it could happen. Um, yeah. And, and the last piece I missed with what is a green burial is what you're buried in. So rather than um, a big casket with, you know, metal or um, something synthetic in there, it could be that you're just wrapped in a shroud, like on a pine board or um, maybe a plain, you know, wooden box, no nails, um, something, anything that can can decompose, um, become part of the earth. I know some people um, lay to rest in wicker baskets. So um, yeah, there's a pretty big range of options there. I think it's pretty amazing that it's becoming so popular, and especially since we're a lot more environmentally conscious. And and with what you just shared, I think it's the perfect transition. We're going to listen to a clip of an interview that you did with uh, Patrick Healy, who's the director of Green Mount Cemetery in Montpelier and president of the Vermont Cemetery Association, and as well as Jennifer Whitman, who is the former cemetery commission in Calais, Vermont. And let's take a listen. We didn't think it would take off as fast as it would. I'm getting a couple of emails a week from around the state. 
from how to be buried here or how can we get our cemetery to have natural burials. It is much bigger than I ever thought it would happen because I don't know if it's because it's new or if people are just wanting something very environmentally friendly. All you got to do is one. You do one natural burial and you realize all of the benefits of it for the family, for the land. All of a sudden, it just all makes sense. So with what both of them said, you know, is it more or less expensive to do this, Lexi? Oh, and I'm, I'm sorry, that last quote was actually from Lee Webster, not Jennifer Whitman, but um, she's like pretty big in the, the green burial world. I don't know her exact title, but um, so expense wise, um, in terms of comparing to uh, cremation, which is actually the most common um, way to deal with the dead right now in, in New England and, and across the country, it's well over 50%. But in New England, it's like 70, 80% um, of people who die uh, choose cremation. So um, it depends <laughs> like on a, like a lot of things, but um, typically if you just are choosing cremation, that's gonna be cheaper, you know, it can be um, a couple hundred dollars. Um, if you are choosing cremation and then a burial plot to to have those where those um, cremated remains um, will be, uh, it, you know, the, the often burial plots will will be over a thousand dollars. So so that could be on par with um, like the cost of a green burial. But I've seen um, between two and three thousand dollars in in Vermont um, as the you know range here. There's definitely more expensive um uh cemeteries like um there's a beautiful cemetery outside of boston mount auburn where i think it costs you know maybe eight or nine thousand dollars um to to have uh both the plot there and um and the burial so um so it's and and then how that compares to like a conventional burial, it's often the same price or a little cheaper. Um, and again, those conventional burials often have like a, a big monument, um, a headstone, um, which will again something typically different than a, a natural burial where you wouldn't have um, you know maybe you'd have a flat granite marker on the ground, um, but not not a big old headstone, which is, is going to cost you more money. So um, cheaper or the same price as a conventional burial, typically more expensive than it than than cremation, running between two and three thousand dollars and maybe more. And we've got about a minute left, but I do want to ask, you know, you've been breaking down the financial costs for us, but what about the environmental costs? Like do you know anything about the carbon footprint of a traditional burial versus a green burial? Yeah. Um, you know, there's a stat from the Green Burials Association that a typical um Typical conventional burial is like 250 pounds of carbon. Um, and that's from the cement, you know, the um, some of those embalming fluids. Um, and here you're storing a little bit of carbon. I would, you know, hesitate to, to call this carbon storage, but um, it's it's not like you're not the the only thing that you're doing is is um, using up some land, and there's some cemeteries that are are working t 
to have um, like working with land trusts as a way to be like, let's let's preserve this land. Let's conserve this land. So, you know, there's these, you know, Vermont forest cemetery, um, this idea of using cemeteries as, as land conservation. Um, this to compare to um, cremation that requires a little bit more energy to, you know, you've you've got this like hot fire um that you're you're burning um and and that'll that requires energy to to heat so um it's going to be less less energy intensive than than cremation for sure that was lexi krupp she's a science and health reporter for vermont public i'm Catherine shin to listen back to all of your favorite where we live conversations download where we live anytime on your favorite podcast app Today's show was produced by Tess Terrible and Katie Pellico. Thank you so much for listening.